The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is powered by theflycrate.com, your source for all things fly fishing. And Wait For It Films. For action-packed fly fishing videos and camera-related content, check out Wait For It Films on YouTube. Based out of British Columbia, Wait For It Films can also be found on the web at www.thewaitcreativeco.com. So we've got Emily Roger out of Fredericton, New Brunswick, two-time Grand Fondo Cycling World Champion, raised in uh, New Brunswick, uh, former triathlete, Ironman World Qualifier. She's now executive business coaching and fly fishing her way around the planet. Uh, lots to cover on this one, and Emily's got one heck of a story. Um, we'll share it with you up next. But first off, I want to thank the top few cities for downloads this week. Temecula, California in the number one slot, followed by Austin, Texas, followed by Seminar in British Columbia, Spruce Grove, Alberta, Seattle, Washington, Mifflintown, Pennsylvania, Kalispell, Montana, Arroyo Grande, California, Sugarland, Texas, San Pedro, Honduras, Ridge, New York, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and Chicago, Illinois. Thanks so much for the downloads this time around. You, you, you are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. But those bass, how, how do those pull on a fly rod? It's like crazy. <laughs> yeah, full on freight train of like. So the first morning that uh, that I was there, I was fishing uh, with the owner of the lodge, one of the owners, Rodrigo, and he hooked into a peacock within the first like 20 minutes of us being out on the water. And it just like completely snapped his fly line and broke his rod. And like, like wow. right at the take. And I was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> like, <laughs> what are we getting into? <laughs> at, at some yeah. point, at some point those fish, okay. When you're catching 14 inch, 16 inch rainbows, and then all of a sudden say you're into a 36 pound Atlantic salmon, which I know you may or may not have caught. Uh, <laughs> talk, talk to me about that. How did that Atlantic salmon compare to that peacock bass? If you had to pick one, could you pick one? Or they just uh, totally, totally different. That Atlantic salmon, especially like those early season fresh fish, you hook into them and they basically head straight back to the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. And so they're, you know, you're hopping in and out of, of your boat and out of the canoe and they'll take you two kilometers back down river. Um, hmm. It's, uh, yeah, a totally different fight. That line of work, it, it first came with me kind of checking in with myself and how was I able to have the success that I was having in sport? And I think that a lot of that came from the, the questions that I was even asking myself and how curious I was with myself, with my motives, with my, um, with just clarifying what it was that I wanted, what my goals were, and then how to then go about achieving them. And in in working with other athletes that I was coaching at the time where you take more of that direct approach of the expertise kind of lies within the coach. Um, and then really trying to take a more non-direct approach to help pull out the expertise in the individuals themselves. And, um, because I believe ultimately we're all the expert in our own lives. Nobody else knows what's best for us. Nobody else knows best what is for our business, for our 
whatever else. Um, and so, yeah, with that, I just kind of started learning about different styles of coaching and, uh, took various different, um, courses and certifications and then ultimately ended up at Royal Roads University doing my graduate program, um, in, in executive coaching. And I've stuck with it because it is just so powerful. And, um, I believe that, you know, when I can, or like anyone, like we, when we can really tap into our capabilities, um, remove our blind spots, have someone help us kind of hold up that mirror to see like, what are we, what is kind of going on in our life and and what is the bigger picture? I think it's in, in seeing people really get to know who they are. I think that we live in such a world where everyone wants to better themselves. And I think so often people don't even know themselves. And, and it's like kind of once we get to know ourselves, then that's when we can kind of start to remove our, our blind spots and make different choices and make choices that are not based upon fear um, and kind of changing our, our mindsets from in a lot of ways, like a, a fixed mindset to a growth mindset or living a life of abundance instead of scarcity um, and just really, yeah, shifting the way that we think about ourselves, other people. Um, yeah, it, it, it is, it's rewarding to, to be able to facilitate that change in other people. Yeah. And, and, and watch it unfold, watch people grow and achieve goals, find happiness, find joy, find purpose and passion in life. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Very happy you chose to join us. And we've got something extra special for you today. I always like to dig into people's stories, find out why. Why do they fly fish? Why do we do what we do? Why do you spend time at the vice? Why do we spend time on the water? And just kind of digging into people's background. And we've got, uh, we've got a great show for you today. We've got Emily Roger out of Fredericton, New Brunswick on the line. Uh, two-time Grand Fondo Cycling World Champion. Uh, raised in New Brunswick. She's a triathlete, um, Ironman World Qualifier, executive and business coach, health and life coach, passionate fly fisher. Fly fished all over the world. And we've got so much we can talk about. Emily, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Hey, thank you, Mark. I, you know, when, when, when I first reached out to you, I'm like, here's a story. And I, I just love stories. I think everyone's got one, but yours is definitely pretty diverse. So, um, I, I, I want to start out at the beginning at the fly fishing beginning for you, if that makes sense. How did you mm-hmm. discover fly fishing? Like, when did you kind of pick it up? 
I picked it up in about 2015. So prior to that, like I, I don't um, compete or really do triathlon much anymore. I haven't really since about 2015. Now I primarily do um, cycling and other endurance sports, but mm-hmm. I, I picked it up while I was recovering from a uh, pretty severe cycling accident um, where I had been airlifted to a trauma hospital um, with brain injury and extensile facial um, trauma and was just really struggling with PTSD and struggling with a brain injury. Mm -hmm. And, um, the idea of fly fishing came to me just as I was kind of reflecting back on times in my life where I, um, I felt safe. Um, I felt just really happy and I felt that I wasn't focused on other things in life. And and those memories were of um, times of being a kid and just being by the water and fishing. And so that's kind of how the the idea of like fishing came back to me. And Mm -hmm. then I chose fly fishing because the more I read about it, there was more uh, technical stuff that goes into it and more thought maybe that goes into it and really just being able to learn something new, which I love doing. And so, yeah, I started fishing in Sedona, um, Arizona and it, uh, yeah, the passion <laughs> grew from there. Can, can I ask you something? So when you kind of found it again, what is it about, like, what is it about fly fishing that brings you to the water? So why, like, and now you've been doing it for quite some time. Why? What does it do for you? It, um, it really quiets my mind. Um, it really can, allows me to connect um, both with nature and ultimately with myself and with the beautiful fish. That's just kind of the, the icing on the cake, I think with it all, but it, um, yeah, like initially, like it got me away from that, like just grind of life, that grind of like the pressure that I put on myself. And when I, when I'm at the, uh, like on the water, although sometimes, yeah, I definitely put pressure on myself. If there's a salmon that needs to be in there that's, <laughs> that I know is out there for like permit fishing, like, man, talk about pressure. Um, but yeah, like initially, initially it, it took all of that pressure off and, um, yeah, it really provided a space for me to be able to get curious and honest with myself in right. choices that I was making in my life, in um, ways that I was acting, in beliefs that I had about myself. Um, hmm. Yeah. So, so here you are, you're a competitive athlete, obviously um, two-time world champion, Grand Fondo cycling, and I would imagine training is such a huge part of your life and I'm sure still is. But when, when this accident happened and I don't like to relive sad spaces too often, but I just kind of like to get a feel for your story a little more when this happened, Mm -hmm. were you training or was this an active race? How did that go down? I was training. Um, I had actually just competed in my first ever bike race a couple of days prior and, um, and yeah, it was a couple of days later and I was just out for an easy recovery ride and, um, yeah, a vehicle ran a stop sign and T-boned me. Um, mm -hmm, so, so then, so then what? So, so, you know, it sounds like a pretty serious accident. So you're, I'm sure your training came to a halt and you're like, okay, you kind of start looking around and evaluating things. Now what? I'm sure you're probably eager to get back on that bike. What, What was your next step after that? 
getting back on the bike. <laughs> um, it really was it. So I had four months um, until I was cleared to be able to get back on the bike. And, you know, having I had just kind of found that new like passion of cycling. I didn't grow up with the opportunity to really play sports or play competitive sports. So it wasn't really a part of my life until the age of Kelly, yeah, like 27. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I loved it so much that when that accident happened, I just wanted to be back out on the bike. And, um, you know, speaking of those pressures, I put a lot of pressure on myself to to get back on the bike and to get back to racing and to see what it was that I was truly capable of because the bike kind of like it opened up the side of competitiveness in me that I didn't really know was there it opened up this athletic ability that I had never tapped into before and so I was just really curious as to where can this go and um yeah and and so in hindsight I push things a little bit too quickly, um, in order to, to get back out and to get back to racing and get back to training. But six months after the accident, I was competing again, um, while still undergoing surgeries and, um, rehab for, um, neurological issues and, uh, yeah, all sorts of stuff. I, I, I get, so, so I've had a brain injury in the past too. So, so when, and obviously some of the years is pretty darn serious, but when, when you have a brain injury, you you got some people don't talk about a lot in accidents and, and anybody that's been in one can relate to this. There's a PTSD factor, you know, whether it's a noise or a smell or so, there's something that triggers that kind of you to relive that. Did it, did you manage to push through that and just say, you know what, this ain't, this isn't going to bother me. This isn't going to get the best of me. I'm just going to put my head down and keep, keep cycling or, what was your mental your mental process in that? Yeah, I pushed through it, but it got the best of me. I think that's something that, um, yeah, I really I tried to avoid everything. Um, I just tried to pretend like I was okay, both with the brain injury and the PTSD. And I tried to convince myself that none of it bothered me. Meanwhile, yeah anything startled me yeah um whether it's a noise whether it was a vehicle whether it was i mean just and i was on edge all of the time Hmm. i could see fly fishing really helpful with that though it yeah like just being by the water being away from any noise any vehicles um yeah Hmm. like it really was a place where i actually felt safe and wasn't reliving this fearing like I'm fighting for my life again. So I, I, I have done some, some, a little bit of background, a little bit of research on you. And so I, I know that your story takes another turn because you kind of finally get back in the saddle again. And it sounded like you're out in Europe and then the unthinkable happened again. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk, you know, just give us a Cole's notes or whatever you're comfortable sharing. What, what happened next? Yeah, it's like that thing of, you know, you survive one life-threatening, like very critical accident, and you think like, I mean, in the back of my mind, it was always like the possibility of it happening again was right there, and so fresh in my mind, and, um, you know, in many ways, kind of like feeling like I cheated death almost, Um, but then on this other side, it's like there's no way that could... ever happen again like what are the chances of it ever happening again and 
yeah, I was in a race in France, um, a professional stage race, and was descending down a mountain at top speed, um, and a vehicle got onto the race course, oh. and yeah. So, so back I was in the hospital. <laughs> you ever just start going, really? I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. as, as somebody that, like, I know nothing about cycling, but I have a lot of friends that do it, and I look at them on the road every day, and you, you're vulnerable, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're you're at the mercy of every passing vehicle, and at some point, that's got to take a toll, and especially when it happens to you twice, you must be looking at things going, really? Now what? Yeah, yeah. So, I, again, um, <clears throat> I think I was... I think it was just four months after that accident that like when broken bones had healed and stuff and I was right back to racing and I raced about three stage races back to back. And, um, yeah, there was a part of me that was just like, what am I doing out here? Because it's not safe. It is a very dangerous and risky sport. And, um, you know, you're descending down a mountain at 90 plus kilometers an hour with a, a with a group shoulder to shoulder of 100 plus cyclists. Mm. And, um, yeah, the the risk was just not worth it to me anymore. And um, even when I like I never really decided to like kind of quit racing. I just was like, I'm going to take a little break from it. And then at that summer, I just spent a lot of time traveling for fly fishing and then just really realized that, um, yeah, like those podiums, those like world championship titles or national titles or, or spots on, on pro teams or that just kind of lifestyle of being an elite level athlete. It just, it wasn't worth it. It, um, it didn't fill me up the Mm. way that I had hoped it did. And even now I still, I ride a lot. Um, but I am very cautious about riding on the road and riding around vehicles because yeah, you are at the mercy of drivers. Do you find you ride now more for yourself than to finish first? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. So it's, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I I haven't raced for a little over two years now. And the pandemic certainly kind of played into that. But I haven't even done really any athletic events in the last two years. And just recently, I signed up for a ultra marathon, which will be my first ultra marathon. And at the beginning and signing up for it, I was like, I want this to be a race where I just finish it. And then, you know, within like a few weeks of getting into my training program stuff for it and kind of starting to build up mileage, it's like, no, I actually do. I want to do well. <laughs> like, I don't want to just finish this. Like, I want to go out and give this my all and do really well. <laughs> Can I ask you something? Do you do you half ass anything? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I kind of got that. So I'm just looking at your resume. You know, you had a quote that... I'd like you to speak to, and I, I really, it really resonated with me. You said, we live in a world where we're constantly overthinking everything. We procrastinate and make excuses. We spend too much time in our minds and not enough time in our hearts. Hmm. That's a great quote. Did you come up with that? I guess so. I, I, I like <laughs> it. What, what, walk me through that. What, hmm. Is that how you came to discover fly fishing again? Or is it, you know, has that been a big kind of move in, in kind of your the push of where you're headed? 
Yeah, it, you know, I think with anything, like we can, we can think so much, but until we put those thoughts to actions, they just stay dormant in us. And so, you know, if you have that thought of, oh, I want to try fly fishing, well, try it. Don't just keep it as a thought. If you think, gosh, I wonder what it's like to complete an ultra marathon. Well, go start training and, and find out what it's actually like instead of just thinking about it or like doubting yourself that you can't do something. Um, and it, you know, even, even with this thing of, of doing things kind of half-assed, like I have to be very conscious with myself and honest with myself of, am I striving? Because there's been a lot of times in my life where I have been striving and I've been striving to either be really good at something or wanting to be the best at something. And so now it's taking that time to really check in as to what is my motive behind what it is that I am doing. And in my heart, do I really just enjoy what it is that I'm doing and want to be out there doing it? And, um, Hmm. yeah, just really staying aware of yeah. that. I find some some people that I know are just so busy trying to achieve, they get stuck in it. It's like it's like a cycle. It's like I'm busy, I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to do that, but I think sometimes when you sit you look at it from afar and you go, what's my motivation behind this? Am I doing this because I want to be the best at it? But I think I think when you find something like fly fishing or wherever you get peace of mind, for me there's I don't even know how to verbalize it, Emily, but, but there's like, um, you're doing it for a bigger reason than just trying to achieve. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. You're doing it because life is a blessing and each day is meant to just be adored and loved. And, um, Hmm. yeah, instead of just like trying to chase this feeling of accomplishment all the time. And, we certainly do. Like we live in this high-paced world where busyness is a badge of honor. And for <laughs> me, like I want it to be the total opposite. If I can find ways to be better efficient in anything that I do, so that I can just do less of it all. Like, <laughs> like how yeah. how can I be more efficient in my training? How can I be more efficient in my work? How can I like? <laughs> I I think that yeah, we don't give ourselves enough downtime. Hmm. I like it. All right. So let's dig into this fly fishing thing. First off, I always like to get a feel for your neck of the woods. And I know you've been a person that's moved a little bit um, throughout your uh, your career so far. But you're joining us from Fredericton, New Brunswick, kind of recently moved back. I, I want to take some time to get to know you off the water. You ready for a few different questions to get to know your day to day? I am. You want to know like my favorite color? Well, um... no, not so much color. How about music? Though? Let's talk tunes. If you're on your way to the water, say you're chasing Atlantic salmon or, you know, wherever you happen to be going in your vehicle, what, what are you playing on the stereo? Do you know what I love is silence. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I think Simon and Garfunkel had a song about that. <laughs> Sound of silence. Uh, yeah. I really, it's, it's, it is not that often that I actually have music playing when I'm driving. Fair. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think a lot of people are, are, are that way for sure. So what, what's one go-to fly pattern, Emily, that you can't live without? So let, we should probably say, you know, we're on a moving water, your favorite stretch of water, uh, maybe your home water. What do you, what do you tie on more often than not? I would say so being in uh, being in New Brunswick for Atlantic salmon um, and having a lot of time fishing up here in the fall, I would say my number pick to pick just one. I know. It's like, I I guess the the first that would come to mind would be the undertaker. 
Ah. It's a it's a pretty yeah. Okay. What does the Undertaker look like for those of us that don't fly fish for Atlantic salmon? Is is that I I picture a dark, big shouldered fly. <laughs> A dark fly. I don't. I wouldn't say it would have a big shoulder on it. Black. Okay. It's got green on it. A little bit of gold. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, do you tie? I do. Cool. We'll we'll dig into yeah. that. Where's your favorite place to talk fly fishing? So when you're not in your waders, like, is there a fly shop locally? Is it social media? Is there a group you frequent? Where do you get your fix when you're not fishing? Podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I would say just, um, just with talking with friends, um, there's not really a local fly shop here. There's, um, so I would say planning trips with people, um, staying in contact with people who I have traveled with or have upcoming trips with. Um, Mm. and you know, a lot of people will hear that I fly fish and they don't, and then they ask questions about it and it often sparks conversation. So I would say that the majority of my conversations with people about fly fishing are with new anglers or anglers who, who don't yet know that they're going to be an angler. (laughs) I find when I talk to a lot of athletes, they don't, they don't necessarily fan on sports too much, but if, if you had to pick your favorite sports team, like pro, college, or otherwise, are you a hockey fan or basketball, baseball? Where do you get your fix in the sports world? My own training, <laughs> to be honest. Like, I, um, yeah, I don't really follow. I mean, I like kind of every sport a little bit. If it's like hockey playoffs and stuff, I certainly follow along on that. But on a day-to-day basis... I don't really, um, I'm more kind of just the time that I have to focus on sports is usually focused on my own training and Mm. looking up events that I want to do, um, or goals that I want to achieve. Um, yeah, I'll tell you. So, so where I'm at, we used to have the national championships for, for Ironman in, in the Valley that I, that I live. And I I always noticed we used to run an aid station and I used to watch those athletes push through and think, man, I don't think I could ever do that. It takes so much commitment, but when you look at it, how much time like training for those events, like Ultraman, I'm sure is probably just another level. I mean, it's not like you have a lot of spare time between, you know, trying to get out on the water trying to train that's got to be all encompassing yeah it um you know again for me that comes down to efficiency like when i was racing full time um yeah there would be some weeks of spending 15 to 25 hours on the bike and then that doesn't kind of account for core work or off the bike strength training um and yeah just the amount of time that you spend eating and sleeping and recovery now it's really about how can I get the the most of my training um, and just be really specific about what it is that I am doing because I don't have as much time to put into it. Um, yeah, so right now I'm running about eight hours a week, um, a few hours a week in the gym, and then I'm I'm very diligent on taking time to do mobility training, um, that type of stuff as well. Like, let's say I have a two hour run planned for the day. And, uh, I also want to do like 15 minutes of a mobility routine. 
I will cut back on my runtime in order to to do the mobility work. Um, hmm. Yeah, just because I know that ultimately it's going to serve me better. Yeah, fair. Um, fill in the blank for me. When I'm not fly fishing, I'm usually doing what? Oh gosh, that's a long blank to fill in. There's a lot of stuff that this girl does. <laughs> okay. Start at start at the top of that list. I uh yeah, I mean if it was fly fishing stuff, like it could be tying flies, it could be cycling, it could be running, it could be working out. It more than likely could be working. Um I also, I mean, I have so many different hobbies that I love to do. I love baking. I love cooking. I love like decorating elaborate sugar cookies. I recently started to play the piano. Um, yeah. Do you ever say, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do today or have you always always got like a schedule? No, you know what? I, um, I am, I am very like I have, and I write my schedule out. I like people are like, you know, that there's an app on your iPhone that does, (laughs) but I write everything out and I give myself or try and give myself plenty of free time to be able to just do what it is that I decide that I want to do, um, in that given day or in that given moment. And that I'm not always committed to something. And, as many hobbies that I have and as many activities that I like to do, I, um, I really do give myself a lot of just downtime of, of really trying to just do nothing so that I can be really clear on why am I doing the things that I'm doing and, and what things do I want to do more of and what things do I want to do less of instead of just kind of getting in this like hamster wheel of life of just doing stuff all the time. Oh, the old hamster wheel. Yeah. Got it. Um, (laughs) I think about that a lot because I think of a lot of us get caught up in our day-to-day jobs. And if you're not getting fulfillment out of that, it's like, what am I doing? Yeah. Talk to me about the best job you've had. Are you doing it now? I am. I have the best job. I love my job. That's awesome. (laughs) I really do. Yeah. So I, um, I work primarily as an executive coach. Um, so business coaching, leadership coaching, I also do health and life coaching along, um, with that and some athletic coaching, my kind of, um, belief on that is like, even the term executive coaching, like that's what my graduate program, um, is in. And so that's what I would kind of primarily say that I do, but really it's, it's coaching the person both personally and professionally. So sometimes I'll be working with a top level you know, CEO or executive, and they were kind of working through some business stuff. But in the time span that I work with my clients, it's usually like 90% of the time, we also talk about lifestyle, about nutrition, about exercise, about, I mean, just all other, like just facets of life, because it's all connected personally, professionally, we're the same person. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all intertwined what what's yeah. the worst job you've ever had or that you're willing to say yeah so when I um I would say when my last year of high school for a summer I bust 
tables at a local restaurant and I think I lasted about a week and I was like nope the dishwasher was so mean to me and I was like I cannot do this (laughs) so then I went and got a job at a golf course instead which was way better (laughs) (laughs) all right um best fly fishing location that you personally have been oh gosh without without giving away a secret spot Well, I um, actually right now I'm kind of getting ready to head back to Chile and um, that is definitely up there in Patagonia. I'm heading heading back to Patagonia base camp. So you you fly into Santiago and then drive? Is that Argentina? Because Patagonia covers quite a bit of ground. It does. Yep. So, um, flying into last time I fished Argentina also when I was down there, um, this time flying into Portamont, going to oh, do beautiful. a couple of days of trail running there yeah. and then, um, head down to the lodge from there. I spent a week in Puerto Mont one time and, uh, there's a wicked volcano in there. There's that's always got snow on it and there's a, yeah, there's a I, uh, I, lift up the top of it. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna run it while I'm there. Are you serious? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You you might need some grip on those shoes because um, yes, I don't believe the snow <laughs> leaves there. There's some no. big brown. There's some big sea run fish there, man. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, speaking of snow, I just um, finished a 20 kilometer trail run in about. 20 centimeters of fresh snow that came down last night oh, i was no. like if this is this is more of a like a ankle workout ankle mobility like oh. yeah uh, <laughs> so okay so well, where there you go i know you spent some time fishing um in the amazon jungle i saw some pics of you with some peacock bass that looked pretty darn fun it was pretty darn fun is right. Is that Brazil? Yeah. What, what country is that? Yeah, that was in Brazil. Yep, that was at the Rio Marie Lodge, which was so phenomenal. And it, um, yeah, like that, I think that, that exact um, fish that you are speaking of, that peacock bass, like even in those rivers there, like I was just completely blown away that um like I fished a couple of different places down there, but um yeah, on the Rio Marie that the the water is so acidic that there's like it's basically sterile. There's not many yeah. bugs. There's not many, and so I could swim in it. Like it was kind of hmm. complete opposite of what I thought the Amazon jungle would have been. Yeah, no kidding. You think it would be, you know, full of nitrogen and Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. But those bass, how how do those pull on a fly rod? It's like crazy. <laughs> yeah, full on freight train of like so the first morning that uh, that I was there, I was fishing uh with the owner of the lodge, one of the owners, Rodrigo, and he hooked into a peacock within the first like twenty minutes of us being out on the water and it just like completely snapped his fly line and broke his rod and like j- like wow. right at the take and I was like, oh my gosh <laughs> like <laughs> what are we getting into? <laughs> At some point, yeah. at some point, those fish. Okay, when you're catching 14 inch, 16 inch rainbows, and then all of a sudden, 
Say you're into a 36-pound Atlantic salmon, which I know you may or may not have caught. Uh, <laughs> talk, talk to me about that. How did that Atlantic salmon compare to that peacock bass? If you had to pick one, could you pick one? Or they just different? Uh, totally, totally different. That Atlantic salmon, especially like those early season fresh fish, you hook into them and they basically head straight back to the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. And so they're, you know, you're hopping in and out of, of your boat and out of the canoe and they'll take you two kilometers back down river. Um, hmm. It's, uh, yeah, a totally different fight. We've got on the podcast Emily Roger out of Fredericton, New Brunswick, a two-time Grand Fondo cycling world champion, um, triathlete, former triathlete, Ironman world qualifier, and now doing a lot of executive business coaching, health and lifestyle coaching. How did you get, Emily, how did you get into the lifestyle coaching? I'm curious. Was it something that you just kind of, at the end of maybe the cycling, you just went, you know what, I could maybe help people? Or what, what was the thought process behind getting into that line of work? That line of work, it, it first came with me kind of checking in with myself and how was I able to have the success that I was having in sport? And I think that a lot of that came from the, the questions that I was even asking myself and how curious I was with myself, with my motives, with my, um, with just clarifying what it was that I wanted, what my goals were, and then how to then go about achieving them. And in, in working with other athletes that I was coaching at the time, where you take more of that direct approach of the expertise kind of lies within the coach. Um, and then really trying to take a more non-direct approach to help pull out the expertise in the individuals themselves. And um, because I believe ultimately we're all the expert in our own lives. Nobody else knows what's best for us. Nobody else knows best what is for our business, for our whatever else. Um, and so, yeah, with that, I just kind of started learning about different styles of coaching and uh, took various different um, courses and certifications and then ultimately ended up at Royal Roads University doing my graduate program um, in, in executive coaching. And I've stuck with it because it is just so powerful. And um, I believe that, you know, when I can, or like anyone, like we, when we can really tap into our capabilities, um, remove our blind spots, have someone help us kind of hold up that mirror to see like, what are we, what is kind of going on in our life and, and what is the bigger picture here and how can we take a different approach to make what we're doing even truer to ourselves or even better and build upon stuff. Um, yeah, I love it. Like I honestly, love my work love my job love my clients just feel so fortunate it's got to be pretty rewarding when i always envy people who get paid to help people do you know what i mean like there's got to be a lot of satisfaction in that is that like what's the biggest in your day-to-day -day when you're coaching somebody and you're trying to help them achieve these goals like where does the satisfaction come is it is it in attaining those goals is it writing a roadmap? i think it's in in seeing people really get to know who they are i think that we mm. live in such a world where everyone wants to better themselves and i think so often people don't even know themselves and, and it's like kind of once we get to know ourselves, then that's when we can kind of start to remove our, 
our blind spots and make different choices and make choices that are not based upon fear um, and kind of changing our, our mindsets from in a lot of ways, like a, a fixed mindset to a growth mindset or living a life of abundance instead of scarcity. Um, yeah. And just really, yeah, shifting the way that we think about ourselves, other people. Um, yeah, so it, it, it is, it's rewarding to, to be able to facilitate that change in other people. Yeah. And, and, and watch it unfold, watch people, grow and achieve goals, find happiness, find joy, find purpose and passion in life. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I, I What I'm curious about is, is how, how hard is it to change someone's perspective? Because I, I mean, we, I hear all the time, half glass, half full, half empty. And I think COVID's really hit a lot of people over the head. You know, it's like, we're looking at the lack of, or we're looking at it from, but if you flip that on its ear and you go, but we're pretty fortunate, this is a first world problem. You know, like when you look back in history, we got it pretty damn good. And I think we forget that we can do, you know, most of us can choose to do anything we want to do. Um, speak to that a little bit, the mindset in your mind, like how hard is it to kind of, um, change someone's thinking? Cause that's, that's, I think the older we get, the harder that is. Yeah. And I think with that, you know, some people are just more coachable than others. Um, I believe that everyone is, is coachable, that everyone is able to have their, their mindset, their beliefs shifted or reframed. Um, and that it can often be a challenging process. Like coaching is not like, I always say coaching is always safe. It's not always comfortable because I will challenge people on things that they that they say, um, and, you know, hold people compassionately accountable to what it is that they're saying about themselves, um, and the choices that they're making and, and helping them or getting curious with them as to like, well, why do you view it this way? Um, and yeah, ultimately just seeing where it goes from them, because it's not my job to sway them or to alter their beliefs or bring in my own biases, um, but to really just help them gain clarity and being able to see the way that they are thinking and therefore acting. Who, who has mentored you? Like where, where do you draw your inspiration from in, in, in life, fly fishing, you pick, but like if you had to look at people that kind of you were drawn to and said, okay, I like what this gal's doing. I like what this guy's doing. This speaks to me. Who do you look to for motivation? Yeah, uh, one of them would be my coach, my business coach. Um, I always say never trust a coach that doesn't have a coach um, <laughs> because <laughs> <I like that. laughs> we all have our blind spots. We all have our areas of growth that need to happen. Um, so that would be one. I'm surrounded by, yeah, like a lot of really good friends and a really supportive family um, my sisters, my mom, like people who they don't let me get away with. Um, yeah. Yeah. You can't we, BS them. No, no. <laughs> You're accountable. They call your bluff, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Hmm. That's important. I, I think how long did it take? And we'll get back to the water in a second, but I, for, I love going down this, I, the self-help Avenue for me. What are you drinking there? 
It sounds like a water. Ah. See, I got Rehydrating. Ca- I got some Cabernet on the go. It's probably not good for training. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say. I drink. Go ahead. What's that? Sorry. I thought you were gonna say Gatorade for some reason. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Why don't we talk about your short film, the movie uh, Cadence? I, I'd like to hear more about that. That's something that I um, started looking into, and I'd like you to tell us what, what that's all about. So Cadence is a uh, – so that version is a, is a short film, um, 17 minutes, and it just kind of shares a glimpse into my life story of competitive sport, of um, my cycling accidents – of overcoming brain injury, PTSD, and how I found fly fishing throughout that. So it's very mm. much a a fly fishing cycling film, and um, it's doing the rounds now at various different film festivals. I also do a lot of private screenings um, with it and public speaking engagements with it. Who shot and, that film? Is that done by yourself or, or someone else? No, that was done by a production company called Hemmings Films, and they're actually based out of New Brunswick as well. Is this something we can find on YouTube, or where, if we want to watch Cadence and we don't happen to be where it's airing, where do we find it? It so it's not available to the public yet, um, just because it is doing the film festival rounds and sure. stuff like that. So I don't know when that will become available. Hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I'm sure eventually, like, kind of it, it will be then fully opened. But I've also um, signed on with CBC, who uh, saw the film and, and wanted to do a longer version of it. So there is a, a one-hour version um, wow. that's being edited. Yeah, right now that'll be on um, on CBC television. That's exciting. Hmm. Yeah. When will that come to air do you think or, or do you know yet i think uh i think they're talking about like towards the end of the year okay so we'll look for that and same name cadence no i think it's going to have a different uh, name for this one okay yeah like the emily rogers story <laughs> it, I got a feeling it's still being told, though. Yeah, that's I'll write I'll write that one when I'm a hundred. Let's take it back to the water. Um, so, fly fishing obviously is a big part of your life. I, I'm curious if you have had anything crazy happen to you in your time on the water. So, uh, you know, whether it's a weird wildlife story or just a weird fish story or a weird travel story, anything that kind of comes to mind when you think you're not going to believe this, but this actually happened. <laughs> so many. Um, so actually the, the, the first one that would come to my mind, um, and there's so many like, yeah, different wildlife stories and travel stories and everything else. But when we were filming Cadence last summer, um, or in the spring, we were filming it on the Restigouche River. And so the, the fresh Atlantic salmon are just starting to move up the river. And I kept saying to the, to the one cameraman, James, um, there's this one pool that is absolutely beautiful. And it's overlooking both of the provincial bridges. And then there's a train bridge. And there's an old warden's cabin um, to the right up on the hill. Like, it is just picture perfect and the train goes by once a day and blows its horn and I said James like 
this is where I need to hook into a salmon. And he was like, yes, this is like, this is where it needs to happen. Like the train needs to go across. It needs to blow its horn. And then as that happens, you need to hook into the fish. So we were kind of joking about this for four days and, um, and it's like all on camera. It's like, this is not made up. And then on the fifth morning, um, the rest of the production team had showed up. And so we're out fishing and we go down to this pool and um, a friend of mine who's in the, in the boat with me and it was her, one of her first times um, uh, fly fishing. And so she kind of swung her fly through first and then the guide was like, okay, we'll take a drop. But I thought, no, let me, let me put a fly through here. So I got up, cast nothing cast again nothing then the train goes across the bridge so it's in this exact pool that i was talking about the train grows goes across the bridge it blows its horn <laughs> i jokingly look over at the cameraman james and said there's my cue and that second is when it was like Zzz. no <laughs> yeah <Come on>. it, <laughs> like, was that the undertaker fly no, that oh. was a that was a big spring fly. Um, wow. It was like, yeah, a, a Magog smelt is what that was. Um, but yeah, and I was just like, what? <laughs> like, that's, that's bizarre. <laughs> it will be like hands down the most memorable moment ever. <laughs> that is a great story. I love it. And and honestly, I can relate to that because there's, uh, well, I'm sure across North America, when you think about it, there's a lot of, of rail tracks along some epic waters. So the sound of that, I think of the Thompson River uh, in, in my province, and, and you'd hear the, the, the horns blowing when you're fishing for big steelies on the Thompson back in the day. And that, that kind of reminds me of a spot, but that's, uh, that's pretty wild. Yeah. But paint me a picture. So maybe that was your dream day, but if you could have your perfect day on the water, describe it. I always like to ask, um, you know, what does your dream day look like? What kind of fish are you chasing? Who are you hanging with? What are you drinking? Um, what kind of species are you chasing? What's the scenery like? Just paint us a little picture. Hmm. If you could have your day, any day, any day. It like, you know, I don't, yeah, it's like, uh, I struggle with those kind of questions because I always think that like my dreams are small compared to what potentially could ever happen. And so, yeah, I'm the type of person that is like, I don't even really kind of think those things because I wouldn't ever want to limit myself to what could potentially happen. But if I was thinking species of fish, like Atlantic salmon fishing is really near and dear to my heart. And I think it is because it's my home province and and the fish that are here. And, and they're just like, I look at Atlantic salmon and I just think like, I mean, endurance athlete, like mm, yeah, <laughs> those sure. fish are endurance athletes. Silver bullets. Um, yeah. And, you know, being with, being with close friends and, and even like, yeah, it, I think ultimately like experiencing it with new anglers, watching someone's, eyes, ears, hearts, souls, just be opened to the beautiful world of fly fishing. Um, my most memorable days on the water have been taking new people out 
and watching them experience it. Hmm. Is there something cold to drink at the end of the day, warm to drink? Is it just water? What's going on there? Uh, water and my, um, <laughs> so I eat, I love sardines. <laughs> really? Yeah. I've not heard they're too like, many people say that. <laughs> they're like my favorite food and I'm not even joking. And so every day I have a can of sardines and therefore every day on the water, I have a can of sardines. And it was funny because I was in New Zealand fishing a couple of years ago and, um, I yeah, brought sardines over and then we're in this like little tiny town, um, on the kind of Northern tip of the South Island. And we go into this little store and they had Brunswick sardines, which are sardines that are from New Brunswick. <laughs> really? So, wow. yeah. But no, I, uh, I just water. I'm not much of a, uh, I don't really drink. So that wouldn't even be my go-to thing. Yep. Um, if anything, it would be like a sparkling water. So Fair. I'm pretty, uh, Fair enough. yeah. Well, I'm sure pretty too, bland when it comes to that. Well, with all the training you're doing, I'm sure that's such a big part of your life. I, I'm curious when you found tying. So most people I talked to kind of discovered fly fishing first and then came to tying, but it's not always the case. When did you start uh, spending time at the tying vice? Just really um, two or three years ago now. And it, uh, it's something that I was always kind of interested in and, um, didn't really have the time, or I guess wasn't willing to like make the time to do it, but I love crafts. I just, I love it. <laughs> like all things crafts I love. And, um, and so, and I also love decorating sugar cookies. And so I would do these like really elaborate sugar cookies of any kind of, for any occasion, whether it's a friends, kids, birthday party, or, um, and so I've done a lot of them, of that actually look like flies or a fish, a trout of salmon. And, um, the amount of time that goes into decorating those sugar cookies that people just then eat. Um, and then I was like, I am going to invest this time more in actually learning how to tie flies. Um, and so I'm still like very much a, a beginner, um, at it. I certainly don't know like all of the lingo and terminology and all of that kind of stuff that goes into it, but I have my, my patterns that I tie for salmon fishing and, um, kind of learning how to do a few other little bugs as well. But I, yeah, I love the, I love the, the creativity that goes into it. Um, and it's a really cool feeling being able to catch a fish on a fly that you tied. Yeah. Amen to that. I, I, it's funny because most people I talk to start tying kind of rudimentary nymphs. And but when I look at Atlantic salmon flies, I'm like, well, I can't do that. It, it's like, you know, there, there's some very specialized materials, some rare feathers. They're beautiful patterns. And mm -hmm. I look at that and think if you're doing that, you, you know, if you're going to just tie a plain old hare's ear nymph, it's probably like a walk in the park. Yeah, no. And, and, and that's why it was the, um, yeah, it was tying the Atlantic salmon flies that was really intriguing to me just because of the, like just so much detail that goes into them and they're absolutely beautiful. Um, and yeah, so that's primarily kind of what I do. I, I will 
tie some other stuff if I go down like steelhead fishing um, in upstate New York or um, I'll tie like a few kind of hopper patterns or beetle patterns and stuff like that. But um, mostly all for all for salmon flies. So does that speak to your um, mentality of, okay, so not only do I want to cycle, I think I'll maybe go for a long swim, then ride 112K, then do a marathon. That's kind of the Atlantic salmon mentality in my mind. It's like I'm looking at the vice going like, I don't think I can do this. It looks a little challenging. (laughs) Yeah. You, You like to challenge yourself, it seems. I do. Hmm. I do. Yeah. So what's next? And I love to, what, I love to, I just, I love to learn. I love to yeah. like, just kind of always be tapping into that mm. next. Yeah. yeah. That next level of stuff. Well, that's something I think, and it comes up on this show a lot. Um, whether it's the tying aspect, whether it's the reading the water, whether it's the entomology, whether it's the casting, whether it's the tech stuff, you never know it all and nobody Mm-mm. on the planet knows it all. And for me, I'm, I'm always intrigued by anything, any kind of uh, pastimes that you just, because it, it takes a lifetime, right? So it's like, it seems to me like that might be kind of up your, your alley for sure. Yeah. And that certainly is one of the things that I love about it so much is that I'll never be an expert in it. Um, and in so many ways, always a beginner, and I think that, like, if we are okay with um, mm-hmm. having that mentality of knowing that, like, we don't need to be an expert at something in order to enjoy it, that life is just so much more enjoyable. And then it becomes easier to always have that learner's mindset. Is there anything that, when you look at fly fishing, um, is there anything that kind of irks you about? what's going on in this in the fly fishing space? Are we just in, you know, good ground or is, is there anything that kind of gets under your skin or I always like to ask that question because for me, it's like I've been doing this a long time and I, it's amazing where we're at now from where we've come. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether it's social media posts or it's, um, grip and grin, is there something that kind of irks you in the space? No, there's no, there's not. Hmm. Um, I think that like I've certainly had moments um, of, I guess, being a female in the industry and at lodges and stuff where, um, yeah, like kind of it certainly being a, a more predominantly male sport, I think, especially in where I live. Um, mm-hmm. And so there have been moments that have certainly, uh, yeah, not uh, not been overly enjoyable um but i yeah it's like if if i choosing what i'm going to allow to bother me or not oh i like that that's a good quote because i i think like i worked in a fly shop 30 years ago and there was an attitude right there was this uh there was it was hard to describe because it is different now i mean and once in a while i see it i'll encounter it but for the most part, it's kind of an inclusive attitude. And I, I never understood. It's like, you know what? We're chasing, we're, we're fishing. I don't give a crap if you're using a worm or you're using bait, you're using a fly. We're doing something we love to do. I choose to do it with a fly, but it doesn't, 
it's not exclusive. I mean, once I love Jason Carp on bait and people look at me and go, you're crazy, but you know what? It's fun. And, yeah. Uh, it, for me, if you get satisfaction out of it, what the hell? Right. There's no, yep. I just, I just think that the fly shop space has gotten a lot more inclusive in the last, especially 10 years. You know, the whole 50, what, what about 50, 50 on the water? Does, was that, um, where do you think we're at with that? I think the, um, you know, I, I wouldn't know necessarily like statistics or anything behind it, but I, I did a speaking engagement with the um, FFI Women's Connect group a couple of weeks ago and like talk about a phenomenal women's community of anglers. Like it is unreal. Um, and uh, yeah, like now knowing so many females in the sport. I think it is amazing to me. It doesn't matter if you're male or female or like, it's, it's just like, just, yeah, do the things that you love and be a nice person and be inclusive to everyone out there. And, um, yeah, yeah. it just makes it a, a much happier place for everyone. How much, did you did you find when you started doing your public speaking and you started coaching was there a lot of hurdles in that for you cuz a, a lot of people that I know don't they don't I mean when you when you're public speaking you're standing on a stage or you're doing a TED talk or you're doing there's a lot of pressure and talk to me about that how how do you experience that so you just talked about doing some speeches or some coaching is that a hurdle at all for you to get over? Um, I think that, you know, there are times when maybe I can get caught in in fear about stuff. Um, the majority of the time, no. If I am feeling any of that pressure, it's because of pressure that I'm putting on myself. And when that's the case, I'm the one that has the power to let that pressure go. And I really trust that... Um, yeah, when I go and do something or if I've been asked to speak somewhere that um, that they want me, they want all of me. And, and mm -hmm. I believe in showing up fully, showing up authentically. I just had to have my front tooth taken out. Um, and <laughs> okay. I it was like as a result of one of my cycling accidents, I've had extensive facial and dental surgeries and stuff from that. And yeah, I ended up losing a front tooth a few months ago. And I went four weeks without having any front tooth, like no retainer, nothing, because they mm. couldn't even take an impression because of how much um, bone grafting and stuff they had to do. And I kept working during that time. I did speaking engagements like without my front tooth. <laughs> and it's just this thing of like, we're all human. We all have flaws. We all have faults. We all have insecurities. We all have everything. But when I can just show up as me, then I think ultimately it, it, it provides uh, space for other people to be able to do that. Right. And the thing with public speaking is that like, yeah, mistakes happen. You say something wrong or you say something that just sounds totally stupid. Well, it's like <laughs> at the end of the day, like, what does it matter? We all have those moments in life, whether we're up on a stage or just chatting to a friend or chatting on Mark's podcast. Right. <laughs> like... 
Has that has that been a process for you? And the reason I like to ask that is I think there's a lot of people that that do struggle, you know, with whether it's public speaking or telling their story. Because I mean, I'll be honest with you, I phone a lot of people and I talk to them, and sometimes there's some apprehension to kind of just give the story. At what point did you know what happened to you with your brain injury or accidents? You you realize that this doesn't define me. It's something that happened to me. And I'm comfortable talking about it in the context of my life story. Like when did, was that like an awakening for you or was it just kind of an evolution? Yeah, it slowly happened. And uh, to be honest, even within the last couple of months or even the last month, I've made a lot of progression on that. Um, It was a couple of years ago that I really kind of became more open to talking about my story, talking about my PTSD, talking about how dark some of the times that I went through were. Um, But even in filming the documentary last year, I was not willing to go certain places. Like speaking about my brain injury was kind of off the table. Um, and I still had a lot of shame about that. And just recently I did a speaking engagement for the brain injury Alliance. And, uh, that really for me was the first time that I really honestly spoke about my experience of recovery from a brain injury. And, um, you know, I, I, yeah, it's like, it's, I think it's a continual thing. I think that like our stories, like it kind of always changes because we always kind of find more truth to it or we're willing to go a little bit deeper with it. Um, now I think that I am fairly open. There's still things that I struggle mm-hmm. talking about. Um, yeah, but I, I, for me, it's like, even with that documentary, it's, I chose to do that. I chose to share my story so that it can hopefully, um, you know, encourage other people to kind of reflect on, the way that they are viewing themselves, the way that they're viewing their situation and choices that they're making in their life. Well, you, you've thrown a lot of nuggets our way today. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and I think a big part of it is just being comfortable in our own skin, right? Like it's, you know, as funny as that sounds, I, you hit on it earlier. It's like, um, probably the biggest thing is knowing yourself. And I, 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 I know that's, that's a struggle. It was a struggle for me. Um, but I think the older you get, the, the easier, the easier it is to get to know yourself, but that sometimes there's hurdles and we all have them. We all have roadblocks, but I think once you know yourself, then it, there's no BS anymore. It's like, you know what? It's like you said with your good buddies or your family, you're not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. This is my story. This is how it goes. And there's no, there's no right or wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and building confidence. Like it's, it's, that is something that like needs to be practiced, needs to be built upon. Um, and cause yeah, look at even just confidence itself and how much that limits people from stepping out, from speaking, from getting out and trying fly fishing or a new sport or, um, just so many different things. But when we can start to just kind of build on that and train ourselves in that, then we really do like open our lives up to a whole new world of possibilities and experiences. Well, I think, I think with you coaching people, I think the world's in a better spot and I really appreciate you sharing your story with us today, Emily. It's been, uh, it's very motivating for me to hear how, if somebody wants to say, Hey, I'd like to talk to Emily about maybe some, some life coaching, some business coaching, 
Um, how do we find you? What's the best place to go about that? Yeah, so uh, my they can find me uh, through my website, which is Emily S. Roger dot com E M I L Y S R O D G E R um, or through LinkedIn Emily Roger or Instagram E Roger or Facebook, um, really any of those social media things. But um, they can definitely connect via my website as well. Good stuff. I, I wish you a great season on, on the H2O and a great season in the coaching. Thank, thanks so much yeah. for doing this. Thank you, Mark. This was such a pleasure. I have enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to connecting with you again sometime. We've been chatting tonight with Emily Roger out of Fredericton, New Brunswick, two-time Grand Fondo cycling world champion, uh, former triathlete, Ironman world qualifier, now doing executive business coaching, health and life coaching, fished the Amazon jungle for giant peacock bass and Landed a 36-pound Atlantic salmon. That's, that sounds like my bucket list. But thanks for joining us this time around, and we'll see you next time. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.